Hey everyone, get excited for an awesome episode sponsored by Zoetis and featuring Dr. Kristen Shaw, who is always a blast to talk to. And not only is it great talking to Dr. Shaw, we have a super exciting topic in store for you today. We're talking about an FDA-approved medication for long-term control of osteoarthritis pain in our feline patients. That's right, in cats. And Silencia is injectable, not oral, so your clients don't have the challenge of administering daily oral medication either. Very exciting news for our clients and for our poor arthritic feline patients. Let me tell you a little bit about my guest and then we'll go ahead and tell you more about Silencia. Dr. Kristen Shaw is a small animal surgeon and rehabilitation specialist whose career has focused on bridging the gap between these two disciplines with a specific emphasis on treatment of arthritis. Dr. Shaw received her DVM, MS and PhD and completed a small animal surgical residency at the University of Florida. She's a diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Surgeons and a diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation. She spent two years as a clinical instructor at UF, Go Gators, and nine years in referral practice in Seattle, Washington. Dr. Shaw joined Zoetis as a specialist in pain management, osteoarthritis, surgery, and rehabilitation in 2021. I'm joined today by Dr. Kristen Shaw. I always love having you on the podcast, Dr. Shaw, so thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me back, Dr. Cassie. I love chatting with you. Fantastic. And I'm really excited because we're talking about a new avenue for managing arthritis in cats, which, I mean, as we know, can be a really difficult thing to do. So yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into it and talking about all the options that are out there. Yep. It's exciting times for cats these days. It is. It is. I'm starting to like, actually, sometimes I feel a little bit old in practice because I'm like, wait, this drug didn't exist when I graduated. I'm like, how long have I been out in practice? I feel the same way. <laughs> At least, you know, constantly improving. <laughs> exactly. got to appreciate that. Uh, all right. So we know cats by nature, they're very stoic. They don't always tell us what's going on. So we have to make sure we're on the lookout for ailments and in particular arthritis. I mean, that can be a really subtle finding. What should we be looking for to indicate that we might be seeing arthritis in a cat? And what should we do to kind of get that definitive diagnosis? Yeah, I mean, you're right. It can be tricky to identify OA pain in cats because they are naturally going to try and protect themselves from any sort of perceived threat that could occur if they're in pain or injured. What we are recognizing is that it's actually changes in cats' behavior and mobility in the home environment that are most indicative of OA pain. So think about you. I'm sure you've seen this. We've all seen this. When a cat comes into the clinic, they're either completely scared and motionless and try and hide, or they can become unfriendly or defensive. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, both of those are, are, are going to be difficult to distinguish, you know, true pain, although actually that unfriendly temperament has been associated with, with OA pain and radiographic changes in cats. But ultimately what it is, is we need to look for changes in their behavior, changes in mobility at home, which requires us educating our cat clients about what those changes look like. 
And I feel like that makes a lot of sense. I mean, we hear that in dogs all the time of like, well, we can't jump up in the in the truck anymore. I got to help him. Can you tell I'm in a rural area? Um, and, <laughs> and this kind of stuff. So it would make sense to look for similar kind of changes in cats. Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, North Carolina State University did a study trying to specifically see if there were any behaviors or changes in mobilities that were going to be useful as screening tools. And they did come up with six specific mobility changes. And this included changes or difficulty jumping up onto a surface, jumping down, going upstairs, going downstairs, running and playing. And out of that, there's actually been a checklist that has been created and there's some animations. And the goal here is using those checklists and animations to help educate cat owners about what OA pain looks like. Because typically they just think of those you know, for example, their cat doesn't want to jump on the kitchen counter anymore. First of all, they're usually very happy about that. And second, they feel like that's just a normal sign of aging. But we need to help them understand that that is actually an abnormal thing for a cat to not want to do and a sign of OA pain. Absolutely. We don't want them jumping on the kitchen counter, but we don't want them not jumping on the kitchen counter because they're (laughs) painful. (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly right. So you mentioned this unfriendly temperament, which I'm, I'm sure we've all experienced, but in order to really make a good diagnosis, we need to see these kitties to a degree. Like you mentioned, we're going to rely a lot on what the owners are seeing at home, but it's also important for us to be able to put our hands on them. So do you have any recommendations to make it easier to get these patients into the clinic and maybe even be more amenable to being examined so that we can get to that diagnosis a little bit more effectively and treat them quickly? Yeah, I mean, and you're absolutely right. So I I certainly want to reiterate what you said, that it's a combination of the what the client's reporting at home, and of course, our physical exam that's going to lead us to establishing a diagnosis. But in order to get the cats in, we need to really start embracing some of those low stress handling techniques, um, whether it's fear free, cat friendly, in order to make the visit as stress free as possible for the cat and the cat owner. So there are, I've got kind of three recommendations. The first one has to do with the cat carrier. And we know that many, many times the cat will see the cat carrier come out only on the day that it's going to a vet. They associate that carrier with that scary trip and they run and hide under the bed. And then you have clients calling and saying they're going to be half an hour late, two hours late to their appointment. So what we want to do is have them actually acclimate to the carrier at all times. So what we would suggest is a cat is the cat carrier just lives out in the environment, in in the home, and it becomes a a place where the cat wants to sleep. So put a nice bedding in there. He can use pheromones, catnip. So the cat chooses to go into the carrier on any given day. They can be fed in there. So yeah, acclimating to the carrier way ahead of time from the visit. So it should be part of their natural environment. In addition to acclimating to the carrier, we want clients to choose the right type of carrier that facilitates the veterinary exam as as easily as possible. And that's going to be one where the the top can come off, sort of a clamshell, typically a plastic. Yeah. And there's ones that have little screws and ones that have clips. I tend to like the clipped ones because it's less having, you know, just that's what I was picturing when you said that. Was, yeah. I was like, how many times have I sat there and unscrewed yeah. every little screw on the carrier? And by then, I don't know if the cat's any less stressed than if exactly. I would have just reached in and gotten him out. Exactly. But what we don't want to do is have to reach in or, you know, even worse, kind of dump the cat out, which, you know, I, admittedly, I've, I've been part of in the past until I realized that we could do so much better. So 
what you can do is just take that top part off and then do the exam with the cat just sitting in the bottom of their carrier. So that's kind of number, that was kind of point one A and B all around the carrier. Number two recommendation is using gabapentin before the visit. So I'm a strong believer that basically every cat gets 100 milligrams, unless they're really small and they get 50 milligrams gabapentin a couple hours before coming into the clinic. It's has been shown to reduce the stress of the car ride and the stress of the visit and will absolutely facilitate our examination. And then the third recommendation is, if possible, to actually schedule cat-specific hours in the veterinary hospital. I was talking to the clinic out in Portland, Oregon, where they had catter days. So it was a nice, <laughs> quiet, calm um, day for the cats. They didn't have to smell or hear or see any dogs around. So if, if the clinics can set that up, ideally in the morning, so there's not kind of lingering dog smells from, from the morning. So whether it's Tuesday morning, Thursday morning, or catter days, that would be a great way to help make it as low stress as possible for the cats. I love that catterday. I know. <laughs> it is it's kind of sounds like potentially a low stress morning for the veterinary staff as well, right? you know. <laughs> quite, I, I love dogs so much, but you know, like there's no barking, there's no, you know, jumping and all this kind of stuff that goes. Everybody's just kind of in their carrier and when we work through the morning. That's exactly what that team said is that they all love catterdays now cuz just nice and relaxed. Absolutely. And I love that we're talking about this because I feel like as I've learned more and more about cat behavior throughout my career, I feel like I'm just developing a better understanding of how to interact with them. And, you know, like you said, dumping the cat out and stuff, you know, I've, I've certainly been there as well. And, you know, these not so low stress handling techniques and the difference that comes from using gabapentin, the right carrier, the low stress handling. I mean, it's just... I feel like I'm seeing a whole different species sometimes than than what I used to see in the past. I totally agree. And, you know, it's kind of back to what you mentioned at the very beginning, how there's new new drugs and products that have come out since we graduated from vet school. It's kind of mind boggling that we weren't doing these things back when we were in vet school, that it had to take time to get here. But I feel like such a better veterinarian now that I can appreciate the low stress handling. I could not agree more. And I feel like we can't talk about that low stress handling enough. So I'm so glad we touched on that. Yeah. So in regard to low stress handling, I have to put in a plug for house call veterinarians. Being a house call vet myself, I, I feel like I really see the difference having a pet in the home can make. So are there other unique strategies, uh, maybe even if we can't go to the home, other strategies that we can use to help us get a diagnosis if we have a cat who, even with an owner who's doing everything right, despite our best efforts, we just aren't able to get a really good exam on? Yeah, one of the best things we can do is ask our clients to provide home videos. And those videos can do a few things. Number one, we, we want to ideally ask them to get videos of those six behaviors I mentioned earlier, difficulty, or just basically showing the cat jumping up, jumping down, going, going up and downstairs, playing and running. And that will enable us to have a conversation specific to their cat with that cat owner. It's also really interesting, and I'm sure you see this all the time, just to see what the home environment looks like and see whether we can make any re recommendations for that home environment based on what we're seeing on the, on the video. So videos can be really, really, really helpful for making a diagnosis and then also for monitoring response to any treatment that we might put in place. Sure, we can actually see these pets ourselves in addition to what the owner's reporting at home. Exactly, exactly. The, in addition to the videos I mentioned earlier, there's a checklist that's been developed 
that is asking owners to, again, look at their cat's behaviors, look at those six different mobility changes, and then also looking for things like, are they grooming more or less? Are they urinating or defecating outside the litter box? Some changes in their behaviors that aren't necessarily specific for OA pain, but they can certainly be correlated with OA pain. So there's a website called catoachecklist.com where you can send cat owners to basically educate them around these changes in mobility, changes in behavior. And then that checklist gets sent to you as a veterinarian to follow up on. If the checklist is normal, then it's basically like normal baseline blood work. Follow it up again in a year. If it's abnormal, then it just opens the door to have a conversation. So I love using the checklist along with home videos. Awesome. And I've been to that website actually, and I really like the resources there. And I think it helps give owners a a good understanding of what we're looking for in their cats. Yep, it's eye-opening for many, many cat owners. Really interested in the answer to this next question because I know I kind of have my arthritis management plan, but I'm interested in in your input into all of this. Once we make that diagnosis, we want to start making our multimodal management plan. So what does a comprehensive arthritis management plan for cats look like? Well, it, it it's starting to look a little bit better, a little bit different now that we have the first FDA-approved treatment for chronic pain associated with OA in cats, and that is Silencia. And Silencia is going to be become more widely available in the United States later this fall, kind of around October. It was approved in January of this year. And so that is, is going to be and, and really should be the baseline for OA treatment because it is certainly most proven and has that FDA approval. Prior to, to the approval of Silencia, for me, I would actually have chosen NSAIDs because, again, we do, there is some efficacy data surrounding the use of, my preference would be Robenicoxib or Onsuar, but many countries around the world have approval for Medicam and Onsuar for long-term use in cats. And so that would be a foundation for me. We know that managing pain is the utmost importance with our OA plan. So starting with that that proven analgesic, which is now going to be Silencia. On top of that, or I'd say the next most important thing is looking at the home environment and what sort of lifestyle changes can be made. And that might be looking at the litter box, making sure that if the cat is urinating or defecating outside the litter box, that it's not because it's up or downstairs that they have trouble getting to or getting into. So making sure there's a nice big litter box, maybe the sides are cut out, cut lower, and it's placed in an area where they can easily get to. Then also making sure that cats can live their vertical lifestyle and jump up and get to places where they want to be. So it might be adding benches or ramps or extra extra levels to their cat tree so that they can still maintain that vertical lifestyle. Along those lines, we have to recognize the importance of exercise exercise in cats is going to be a little bit different than we would talk about with dogs or certainly in humans, but keeping their bodies moving, getting their muscles ideally built up or at least maintained is going to be important. So just encouraging that hunting behavior and some home exercises just in short bursts throughout the day. The next kind of group of things I would say would be looking at what tend to get grouped together as supplements. And Adequan is not technically a supplement because it is an FDA-approved pharmaceutical, but that would be my next go-to for managing OA. And so I tend to use Adequan in cats basically the same way I use it in dogs, which is off-label. I use it 
twice a week for four weeks at 4.4 mg per keg, which is the label dose, but I use it exclusively subcutaneously in cats and dogs. After that initial month period, I do tend to kind of wean it down to about once a month. Other things, so omega-3s, fish oil, that can certainly be added in either as a supplement or in the diet, as long as it, the cats are willing to eat that supplement or diet. Other oral nutraceuticals, I'm personally not a huge proponent of. There's not great evidence to support them. And it's asking clients to try and medicate their cats orally with one additional thing. So, and use financial resources that may be better used for something that's a little bit more proven. So that would be my plan. What, what is yours, Dr. Cassie? So I'm really happy to hear your plan because that is pretty similar to what I reach for. Although you had a couple of differences that I, I think I may start to incorporate. A lot of what you said about encouraging hunting behavior and keeping their muscles built up, I think about that a lot in terms of stress and making sure that we're keeping them mentally stimulated. And, you know, so I'll talk to people about food puzzles and treat puzzles and things like that, but I didn't really think about it in terms of arthritis. So I may kind of have that talk a little more frequently now. And then I, I actually, I'm a little curious as far as like the additional nutraceuticals, like say glucosamine, chondroitin, or now we're hearing more about eggshell membrane. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like the, the body of evidence there not being great is is due to lack of studies? Or in your experience, do you feel like maybe this is not the most effective route for managing these guys? You know, it's it's really tricky. I mean, the the whole topic of nutraceuticals is it's kind of like a, a can of worms. Sure. Right? <laughs> because there's there's no governing body that's that's regulating anything that goes into a supplement. So anyone can put anything in a in a jar and call it a supplement. So I think if we're going to use any supplement, first and foremost, need to choose something that's going to be safe and make sure that the safety standards are really the same as you would expect from a pharmaceutical. So you can look for things like the National Animal Supplement Council seal of approval. So yeah, so considering that there's not safety studies that are done in these things, and I think we just tend to think of them as being quote unquote safe because there's just not any evidence or research <laughs> otherwise. Then from an efficacy standpoint, the same thing is nobody has to prove anything. And so studies just really are, are infrequently done. I did see an abstract out of North Carolina State University that was looking at dasiquin for cats and the placebo group actually did better than the dasiquin group, which it's oh, wow. really, really tricky to, to do studies in cats. And we'll talk more about that with Silencia and to see improvement, um, especially in cats. But right now, we just don't have any overwhelming evidence to show that any of the supplements are frankly doing much. Now, if a client is going to give a supplement no matter what, and I've had plenty of these clients, I would prefer that they're going to choose something that I have recommended that I've, I'm comfortable with as a veterinarian. And so some of those eggshell membrane products, the Flexidin Advance was one that I used to use a lot um, for dogs and cats. So making sure that there is a product that you feel comfortable with rather than just letting clients go on their own to choose something that may not necessarily be, be safe or effective. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. At least do no harm in that regard. Exactly. And I'm so excited to talk more about Silencia because I was really interested in, in what you said there in the beginning when you were talking about it, that you know, it used to be NSAIDs, but now you're reaching for Silencia. Is this something, do we use these in conjunction or can we kind of replace our NSAID with Silencia? 
Yeah, so the goal is to replace your NSAID with Silencia. So in the studies, is not Silencia and NSAIDs have not been studied concurrently. And so we're, we're not recommending to give them concurrently, although there's not a contraindication to that. However, we don't think that you're going to need to use both of them. So Silencia has been out in Europe for about the last year, and most practitioners there are finding that um, when they switch cats over from their NSAIDs to Silencia, that it's as efficacious, if not, if not more efficacious. And so we don't think that you're going to use them concurrently. And Silencia is it's a once a month sub-Q injection. So now we don't need to ask pet owners to give an oral medication once or twice a day which would be the case of, of gabapentin, would be twice a day, ideally. So now Silencia is once a month sub-Q injection and should be replacing for the majority of the cats, their NSAIDs, and, and probably any other analgesics. Amazing. Amazing. That sounds like, that sounds ideal, especially because, you know, a lot of these arthritis cats that are older may have comorbidities that create contraindications for NSAIDs. Exactly. That's exactly right. And actually, Silencia was studied in cats that had stage one and two iris kidney disease. And it was found to be well-tolerated in those cats. It's a miracle. I know. (laughs) It's exciting. (laughs) It's incredibly exciting. Now, let me ask you one more thing about it. One thing I'll talk to owners about sometimes is that I'll say, you know, we, we use pain management drugs like say, say gabapentin, for example, to manage the pain, but our anti-inflammatories, we're kind of trying to treat something with that. We're trying to treat the inflammation and reduce the inflammation. So putting Silencia in, like part of my brain says I should still have something on board that's addressing the inflammation that's the result of the arthritis. What are your feelings on that? Yeah, I mean, that, that's certainly a fair point in what we talked a lot about for a long time with NSAIDs. So the way that Silencia works is it blocks, so it's an, a monoclonal antibody that binds to and blocks the action of something called nerve growth factor or NGF. And NGF is a very potent mediator of pain. So it's it's very important in pain signaling, but it also plays a role in something called neurogenic inflammation, which is the development basically of inflammation due to the nerves themselves releasing inflammatory products. And Silencia is going to be able to block the NGF that plays a a pretty important role in the generation of neurogenic inflammation. Another way that Silencia works is blocking NGF, which would be binding to inflammatory cells. And those inflammatory cells go on to release further inflammatory products and more NGF. So Silencia is able to kind of break the cycle that NGF is involved in, which kind of perpetuates that inflammatory and neurogenic inflammation pathway. So while it's not clearly labeled as an anti-inflammatory, NGF does play a role in neurogenic inflammation and kind of our classic general inflammation. So we mentioned that Silencia has not specifically been studied in conjunction with NSAIDs, but what about other drugs? Can we use it with other drugs, maybe even not like arthritis drugs, but vaccines, antibiotics, those types of things? Yes. So it it can be used with vaccines, parasiticides, nutritional supplements, antibiotics. The cats that were in the studies were, um, so there are hundreds of cats and they were ranged in age up to 22 years of age, average was around 13. And there were a number of cats that were on other medications and had other comorbidities, so long as those comorbidities were were stable. And so there were a handful of other drugs that the cats were on 
but it hasn't been specifically studied with many of our other drugs. However, it, there's no contraindication to using it with any other product. This is just, this just keeps getting better. <laughs> so no contraindication with any other drugs. Are there other contraindications for Silencia that we should be aware of? Yes. So there are certainly contraindications. With any product, you're going to see that there's a contraindication for a known hypersensitivity to the active sure. ingredient, which in this case would be frunovetmab. But the other big contraindication, we have to kind of go back to what NGF what its role is. And in growth and development um, or in utero and postnatal development, NGF plays a crucial role in growth and development of the nervous system. So it is contraindicated to use silencia in cats that are breeding, pregnant, or lactating. And along those lines, we, while it's not a contraindication, we don't recommend using it in cats less than a year of age. I feel like I can handle those contraindications and I'm still just as excited as I was before you told them to me. Yeah. And, you know, one other thing I should point out, because this this is important to recognize in that role of NGF, is that it's incredibly important that any human woman who is pregnant or trying to conceive or lactating avoids self-injection of silencia, because that could have devastating consequences. So for that reason, you know, we really don't recommend sending it home with clients um, and just anyone who'd be administering it should be aware of, of those potential issues. But I think, honestly, we should be avoiding self-injection with any product that we're using. This is a good advice overall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Dr. Shah, this has been such an amazing talk. I'm so excited that there's going to be an FDA-approved medication for managing OA pain in cats. This is a huge breakthrough in veterinary medicine. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast to tell us about it. Are there any final thoughts you want to share with us? Well, thank you so much for having me. And I I guess my final thought is to recognize that 40% of cats out there are suffering from OA pain. And I'm I'm pretty confident. You know, I talked to a lot of vets around the country about this and nobody's seeing 40% of the cats out there. At best, it's around 17%. So we have a job to do as a profession to to, you know, really start looking for these cats that have been suffering from OA pain now that we have something that's really going to be able to change their life. Absolutely. Great advice. I know I could not tell you that I'm seeing 40% of my caseload in cats as being treated for arthritis. So I'm glad that you brought that up to just make us all more aware to be on the lookout for these guys. So to recap, Silencia is a new medication for cats to control the pain associated with osteoarthritis. I hope you guys are as excited as I am to try using Silencia. Hopefully we'll really be able to get out there and help some patients. Dr. Shaw, thank you so much for joining me and giving us all of this wonderful information. And thank you to Zoetis for making this episode possible. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this episode, as well as ideas for talks you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day. Important safety information. Silencia is indicated for the control of pain associated with osteoarthritis in cats. For use in cats only, women who are pregnant, trying to conceive, or breastfeeding should take extreme care to avoid self-injection. 
hypersensitivity reactions, including anaphylaxis, could potentially occur with self-injection. Silencia should not be used in breeding cats or in pregnant or lactating queens. Silencia should not be administered to cats with a known hypersensitivity to fernivimab. The most common adverse effects reported in a clinical study were vomiting and injection site pain. See full prescribing information at www.silenciapi.com.